Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Screen Chronicles. I'm Steve. With me, as always, is Buddy Colbstone. Uh, today, we have a special guest on, Dr. Tom Burkett. He's a lecturer in Old English and Old Norse at University College Cork in Ireland. He's written books including Reading the Runes in Old English and Old Norse Poetry, as well as The Norse Myths, Stories of the Norse Gods and Heroes Vividly Retold, which is something we've talked about in a couple of our episodes. Uh, thank you for coming on today, Dr. Tom Burkett. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. And we're really excited to talk about some of these things with you. And just to give you a little background, uh, Steve and I really didn't know much about Norse mythology, the Viking Age, um, you know, anything from the 8th century to, I guess, the 11th, 12th century. We didn't know much about it until we started watching a show called The Last Kingdom, and subsequently, we watched the show Vikings. And it really kind of, although those shows um, are based in, in historical figures and events, it really kind of made us go on our own research and try to learn more about it. So that's one reason we're really excited to talk to you today. But could you kind of start by just telling us a little bit about your background? Um, well, I'm, as you said, I'm, I'm the lecturer in Old, old English and Old Norse at, at University College Cork. Um, I'm not from Ireland, as you can probably guess from my, from my accent. Um, yeah. I've been here for about eight years now in the university. Um, and I think I, I mean, I got interested in the medieval period from a very early age, you know. Oh, really? Um, I had no idea you could have a career in <laughs> medieval stuff, you know. Um, but then when I, was, uh, when I was studying at university, I, I just by chance ended up going to Norway for my, for my year abroad, you know. Um, and since then, I've just been yeah, very interested in the Vikings and in, in, in Norse culture generally. And um, my, my path kind of took me further and further in that direction. So um, it was partly, partly by chance that I ended up so interested in the period. Um, wow. But... Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that's really kind of come back into public consciousness, I think, particularly with shows like The Vikings with Last Kingdom. Um, I mean, the Vikings have always been popular, but at the moment, it seems everyone knows about them and has an opinion about them. And it's yeah. fantastic for me in, in the university. You know? What got you, what drew you to that Norse mythology and that Viking history? Um, I think it's, I mean, apart from reading Lord of the Rings, you know, and... Mm. and uh, and I don't know if you know the Rosemary Sutcliffe novels for, for, for children. Um, they're probably a bit dated now, but I kind of grew yeah, up I'm with not sure. Shield Wall and, and Dawn Wind and all that kind of thing. Um, so I always, always had that interest. But I think when, when I started reading about the myths, you know, and reading about the, it's a very complicated period of history, but the myths, mm. I think, are, are these fascinating, you know, rich, complicated uh, stories that are just very difficult to kind of pin down um, morally and, and, you know, in yeah. terms of contradictions and different sources and things. It just seemed like it would, it would be a kind of endlessly fascinating period to, to study. Um, and it's, I mean, we're, we're finding new things there all the time as well. The sources are very old, but yeah. things are being dug up all the time, excavated, you know, we're, we're learning more and more and opinions about the period are changing. So um, yeah, it's just, just a fascinating time that's in history what, i suppose yeah that's what we really like about those shows is is the mythology and the culture that we get to see um and it really brings it in it's almost like a whole different world when you know especially when we started watching the last kingdom there was their culture the vikings the danes how we saw we were just like wow that's that's different that's just so different we couldn't believe some of the things that we saw in the show and we were like oh that's great screenwriting and then you go and you figure it, find out, wow, that actually happened. Alfred actually went to the Somerset Marshes, you know, and like, stories like that was amazing to find out it was real. 
And one thing I really enjoy about, uh, about this book that you wrote is that it's, it's pretty comprehensive. Not only you get the myths, but you get a lot of history as well. So could you talk a little bit maybe about your approach to writing the book? Well, I wanted, I wanted to include some of those things that wouldn't, wouldn't really fall under the banner of mythology. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think they're all part of the the kind of story world of, of these people, which I guess anyone who's reading the book is interested in. So, you know, the, the myths are, are amazing and colorful, you know, and, and, and great stories. But then some of the historical accounts, you know, of going to settle in Iceland, going, going across to, you know, to Greenland and starting a colony there in the most unlikely place and, you know, traveling down the, the river routes to Constantinople, you know, and serving as the, the bodyguard to the Byzantine emperor, you know, these are, these are true stories and they're just as, as, as crazy as the mythology really. So um, I wanted to kind of blend those two things in. And um, there's obviously a lot of legendary material as well, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, um, the story of Ragnar himself. Um, He's, I mean, that was such a good decision um, to, to base the Viking series around that figure because he's, he kind of marks the point, the exact point really where, legend and history meet you know so he's he probably didn't exist and uh, okay you know he's a kind of there are references to, to historical figures which may have been associated with him but but his son certainly did you know and they, they had a huge impact on the period so yeah he, he absolutely marks that that meeting of, of, of legend and, and history um, so so that book is kind of planned in a way that it begins with the creation you know and all the kind of big mythical narratives and then I've tried to kind of slowly move into legend and then, then finally to end with some of the, the real stories. And, and I think they're as entertaining as the, as, you know, Thor with his hammer and, and Loki <laughs> yeah. and, and, and Odin and all that kind of thing. So, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. The, the creation story that you mentioned in the, the book from their history, their culture, it's so metal is how I would describe it. It's just, <laughs> yeah. There's this yeah. one God, he makes all the other gods and then, they kill him and make the whole world. And it's just, it's so crazy. Um, and yeah, I guess that kind of influenced their, their habits and their culture, I guess, then too, that sort of mentality from their religion. Yeah. I think, I mean, that there are three different stories about the creation, at least, you know, there's, there's the killing of the, the giant Ymir, you know, using his body parts to make the world like that. That's a fantastic story. And if that was something that was, believed widely across the Viking world, you know, they must have had a very different relationship with the, with the landscape, you know, they were seeing trees and it was the bristles of Ymir's beard, you know, they were seeing rocks and they were the bones of Ymir. Yeah, um, yeah. But then there's another, you know, in, in other sources, the, the gods Odin and his brothers kind of pull, drag the world up from, from the, the ocean, you know? Okay. Um, so there are these, even, even that kind of what you'd, imagine would be the one consistent thing about a mythology would be its beginning. There's, there's different stories, you know? Um, and that was quite tricky trying to, to bring those things together, you know, and create a kind of coherent, coherent narrative from them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of fascinating to me how, how believing in these stories or, or kind of understanding these stories uh, in the way that they did would have, would have, give them a, a completely different mentality, I think, to, to a lot of the kind of other European, European peoples at, at the time, I suppose, who'd been Christianized for, for a long, long time in places like England and, and, and Francia and, 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 uh, and Spain, you know. So um, one of the things I think is just the, 
the fact that Odin, particularly as their their kind of head god, he's he's so interested, he's so curious about the mm. world, you know, and he's always trying to find out more. He's always trying to push the limits of what's possible, you know. He's always he's always doing things that the other gods don't approve of as well, you know, um, and and that includes getting you know getting dressed up as a woman and 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 doing kind of magic that's that's. Yeah. prohibited by the gods you know so he's always kind of pushing at those those boundaries and i think that explains a lot of the kind of the mentality of the people that we call the vikings you know who were going out and discovering new places and meeting new cultures and and adapting very quickly to what they to what they found and you know i think i think what that mythology taught them to do was to be was to be adaptable um, yeah. and to be to be curious and to to be deceitful when it suited them as well. You know, Odin is definitely not someone who, who uh, has a good moral compass. Um, but moral, I suppose that, yeah. that was beneficial to them as well and when they were fighting and, and, uh, and settling in new places. The morality of the gods is something that's really interesting to me. Mm. You know, um, I feel like a lot of religions kind of look at the gods as the perfect idol to be, but a lot of these mm. Norse gods are very fallible. Um, and even, you know, they think of Loki as being deceitful, but Odin, like you said, is, is a lot of stories of him being deceitful as well. Um, and Thor so, can be kind of a jerk sometimes. And Thor can be, <laughs> oh yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. He's, um, he just bashes first and thinks about it afterwards. You know, he's, he's, yeah. I always think of him as a kind of angry simpleton really. But, yeah. He's, he's <laughs> not like the, the cool Australian British Chris Hemsworth version of Thor, no, is he? Not at all. No. <laughs> But that, that's, that's something that comes across very strongly. And it's something I tried to get in the book, I think, is that um, they had a different relationship with their gods. You know, like, like you said, they weren't, they weren't putting them up on pedestals and saying, like, this is, a, this is the being who everyone has to aspire to. You know, they were, they were kind of, you know, Thor has a temper, Odin's deceitful. Um, they're marrying each other's, you know, they're in, yeah. intermarrying. There's incestuous relationships. Loki's, you know, turning himself into a horse and yeah, yeah, yeah. the horse and you know that they're, they're um but i think at the same time as kind of humanizing them and and um not putting them on a pedestal that they, they were still i suppose respectful of, of the gods you know and i don't think those two things are, are mutually exclusive and some some interpretations of the gods i think have really gone down the path that they were they were to be feared you know at all times and they weren't to be made fun of and any any norse myth that Pokes fun at the gods was a late interpretation. Um, it was Christians, you know, um, making fun of the gods, um, mm. and and I don't buy that at all. You know, I think they were, I think they were, they held them in awe, you know, and you didn't want to anger Thor, and you wanted to sacrifice to him, and you know, you wanted to because he was powerful. Um, but you could also laugh at him, you know, just as you could laugh at your neighbor who had a, a bad temper, you know, or you could yeah. you could laugh at, at people's faults and foibles and things. So. So they, they really humanized them, I think, and they, they really, they wouldn't have been these, these figures up in the sky, you know, that didn't have anything to do with, with humans. They'd have been walking amongst them, I suppose, you yeah. know. You could see aspects of the gods in, in, in legendary figures, in, in, you know, the people that you admired in society. Um, so I think, I mean, that, that's another thing that's fascinating, isn't it? That, that it's just such a different concept of, of deities and of, you know. Exactly. And of the afterlife as well, of course, which is which is the polar opposite, really, to the, the Christian Christian worldview. And the fact that it seems like the gods are also subject to fate to a degree mm. uh, is kind of another 
thing that separates it from a lot of other religions. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, that, that's something that Odin's always struggling against, isn't it? He's, he's constantly trying to, trying to change or find a different fate for the gods and, and mm-hmm. he can never find it because it's, it's something that's beyond them. Um, and I think it's interesting that it's the norms, you know, those women who weave out the fate, who, who kind of, they're the ones pulling the strings and, and even the gods have to obey that, that kind of cosmic, cosmic force. Um, but that, that idea of um, not only is fate inexorable, it's, um, it's going to lead to defeat, you know, that, that's, that's yeah. really different as well. So they weren't thinking about going to this paradise, you know, yeah. after life. They weren't thinking about good, winning over evil. I mean, even those two concepts, I think, don't, don't fit in properly with the, with the battle between the gods and giants, because it's not clear who is good and who is evil in, a, in, in that exactly. kind of realistic sense. So they were, they were preparing for this, for this battle that they'd lose, you know, and, and again, I mean, that must have filtered through into, into the, the risks they put themselves in, in in battle, you know, and how they were willing to sail out into the ocean, into, the, into nothingness, you know, not knowing what was on the other side of it. And, and I suppose that was something that, that their concept of, of the afterlife was telling them to do as well, or teaching them to do. I thought it was really interesting just how their afterlife, um, when I first started hearing about Valhalla and hell, I, I started sort of putting it towards like our dichotomy of the afterlife or the Christian uh, version of it, where it's good place where you get to be forever, bad place where you're there forever. But uh, Valhalla is really just sort of like Odin's army for Ragnarok is, is what it kind of is. Uh, right. Is that what I'm from what I understand? Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I mean, it doesn't sound like a very appealing afterlife to me. Like you go, <laughs> you go and you hack each other's limbs off in the day and then, you know, you get sewn back together and you, you feast in the evenings. I mean, the, um, there's lots of drinking of beer and mead and things and, you know, <laughs> entertaining, but, but yeah, they are, they're just, they're just in this kind of endless waiting room, you know, where they're kind of practicing and practicing and, and doing these kind of dry runs for the final, for the final battle. And they're doing all that and they're putting all that effort in knowing that they're going to lose, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, I, th- I think Tol- Tolkien admired that he saw a kind of dignity in that. I think the the kind of facing up to the to the chaos or to the darkness or to the monsters, whatever you want to call them, and, and kind of um, knowing you were going to lose, but still, you know, that didn't excuse you from from preparing and, and trying your best. You know? yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a very it's just a very alien concept, I think, to to any That's, kind of yeah, modern Westerners, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just trying to wrap your head around like what people back then, what kind of universe they believed they were living in is, is I feel like it's kind of a tough thing to do for us. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's really hard to put, our, put ourselves in, in their shoes, um, I think. And we've got to be careful as well because almost everything that's come down to us has been filtered through a, a Christian literary culture, you know? Yeah. Um, so things like, the famous myth of Odin hanging himself from the, the world tree, you know, and piercing himself with a spear and getting the knowledge of the runes. Um, that seems to be a really kind of central myth that, that Snorri, like the great mythographer um, of the medieval Iceland, you know, he, he doesn't mention that myth at all, um, perhaps because it was ah. a little bit too associated with, with the kind of practice, heathen practices, you know, um, maybe there was some kind of sacrificing to Odin, hanging from trees, that kind of thing. But even that myth, which you'd think would be, you know, free from kind of influence of Christianity, 
there, there are such clear overlaps with the crucifixion narrative, you know, the, the piercing of the side of the spear, the yeah. hand, you know, yeah. and it's just, it's really different to, difficult to prize these, these influences apart, I think. Um, and to get to the, to get to the kind of core of what, of what we think was there before Christianity. And it's probably an impossible thing to do, but, but even so the stories that have come down are so, so kind of rich and so different. Um, yeah. that there was clearly something, some very different way of understanding the world going on, I think. Why do you think that the sort of more modern Western Christianity won out over the Vikings and sort of took over their Norse mythology? Like, was it just uh, because they were settling there or, or what reasons were that, I guess? Well, I, th- I think, I mean, there, there are lots of reasons, but I think it's the, I think it was only ever going to go one way, you know, um, the, the weight of, of Christian Europe, um, you know, the centers of kind of, of, of learning and, and, and culture and trade um, in, in Europe. And, you know, that was the end of the Viking Age really came about because the Viking kingdoms became modern Christian European kingdoms, you know. Um, and, and that pressure, that kind of relentless pressure to, to become part of this, this really powerful yeah. <laughs> um, world to the south you know with all its trappings like you can imagine the medieval Icelanders when the the kind of missionaries came over with their their incense and their you know their finery and their you know their yeah their bishops mitres and you know yeah. all this all these kind of trappings the the richly decorated manuscripts you know the um the gold and the silver uh, ornaments, you know, everything that was kind of associated with Christianity materially as well. Um, I think that must have been a huge, a huge kind of draw. Um, and, and like I said, I mean, I think, I think also Norse mythology kind of, or Norse belief, if you can talk about that, I think it sowed it, the seeds of its own, uh, of its own destruction in a way, because it was teaching them to be so adaptable, you know, and you get the feeling that yeah. if Odin if Odin had to become a Christian to get something he wanted, he'd have done it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think they were, they were, it was priming them to, to let go of the old gods as well, if it suited their purposes. And for a lot of the Vikings, it suited their purposes very early on to become Christians, you know, to trade with England and, and France, um, like Rollo, you know, the yeah. character in the Vikings, but also a, a definite historical figure started the, the dynasty of the Normans, you know, and within, within a generation, all these Vikings were speaking French and, you know, riding, riding horse, you know, fighting on horseback and, you know, yeah. they, they'd taken on all the, all the culture that they were Christianized, you know. Um, so I think, I think Norse, Norse myth allowed for kind of flexibility in a way that Christianity doesn't because it's so, it's, it's dogma, you know, and, and yeah. I mean, Christianity has the the Bible behind it, you know, it has the religion mm-hmm. of this codified book. Um, and Norse myth didn't have that either, you know, it was a collection of stories. Um, there wasn't a kind of Norse Bible right. uh, to refer to. And that means that in different parts of the Viking world, they, they would have had a different Thor, you know, they'd have had a different person they were worshipping. Um, the stories would have differed. Um, it was constantly changing, you know, and, and so again, it made it more, more adaptable, I suppose, and, and more adaptable to being 
sucked into the Christian narrative as well. You know, there's, there are those amazing um, stone crosses in the north of England, which are carved with scenes from, from the, the poetic Edda, you know, of uh, Thor fighting with the, the Midgard serpent and Odin with the wolf, you know, and somehow they managed to bring those stories into, into Christianity as well. So, yeah, sorry, that was a very long answer. To no, it's great. <laughs> it's, really, it's fascinating stuff. It's really fascinating stuff. That's I think, something Colby, yeah. you always say is that they always seem more open-minded because the, they're polytheistic is how you've sort of interpreted At least Colby. in the show, the way they're depicted in the shows, you know, obviously, I mean, you've seen um, Vikings, you've seen that, like, I think Rolo in season one or two, maybe it was two, um, decides, yeah, you can baptize me for to get what they want. And um, later on, even Ragnar, like, converts to get what he wants at the time. Um, and a thing in The Last Kingdom that I noticed, too, is that a lot of the Danes in that show, when they kind of uh, are looking at the Christians, they're kind of looking at a different entity, not that it doesn't exist. They're just kind of fighting against this different entity compared to the Christians who are looking at all their gods like, oh, they're not even real. You know, they're just false yeah. beliefs, which is interesting. Yeah. Concept. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something that, the sh that both shows, um, particularly Vikings, I think that they get right, you know, the... Ragnar is, is very interested. You know, he has his name's Athelstan, isn't it? Though, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he he's kind of his way into learning about Christianity. You know, and 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 I think that's quite. I think the way they do that is quite believable. You know, so he's okay. He's not abandoning his gods. You know, and and you know he's not desperate to become a Christian, but he's curious and he he's always asking for more knowledge and he's always you know. Um, you always feel he's kind of teetering between the two worlds and he kind of knows that Christianity has the weight of, of culture behind it, you know, um, and that, that it's perhaps inevitable that, that they're all going to become Christian eventually, even though people, characters like Floki are very resistant to that idea as they would have been. Mm -hmm. in. Uh, but, you know, I mean, um, the leader of the great army, Guthrum, you know, yes. he, was, he was baptized as part of the peace settlement with, with Alfred the Great, you know, and, and Alfred was sponsored him as his baptism, you know, and so that was, that was a way of kind of Alfred telling him, like, you're, you're coming into the fold now, you know, and, and uh, like whether that changed their, their behaviors and attitudes quickly, I, I doubt it very much, you know, but, yeah. um, but I think that this idea that the Vikings would rather have, you know, they'd have rather death than conversion to Christianity is, is rubbish. You know, so many of them just took it because it was convenient, you know? And, yeah. So some other thing that's interesting is, um, I think it's Snorri Sturluson is his name, right? Yeah. yeah. He wrote the Edda, right? And, but he had converted to Christianity. Is that correct? Well, he, I mean, the whole society being Christian. Had been for, Christian. Yeah. For, I mean, over, over 200 years, 250 By years. the point he wrote that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, so why, he, why do you think, does it surprise you that he ended up writing these Norse beliefs in a, in a book? Um, well, I think, I think in Iceland, they, they were so, um, they were so kind of in touch with their, with their history um, and poetry stories of their ancestors, you know, were so important to them. Um, and you couldn't, you couldn't compose Norse poetry without, making mm. reference to those old body of stories. You know, you couldn't quote an old poet without making reference to the, to the myth, you know? Um, so I think he was very much in, interested in preserving the mythology in order to preserve 
the literary tradition that he saw himself as being part oh, of. Interesting. Um, so I, I think in Iceland they they weren't they weren't so quick to let go of the old stories. I think because it just had this additional. Icelanders were very proud of of their literary tradition and of going to other countries and kind of serving as the court poet, you know, for a powerful Norwegian earl or for the king or for. Yeah. Um, so that was really part of their, their identity um, was was bound up with poetry, with with the sagas, with the settlement history. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's surprising in a way that this stuff survived for for that long, you know, against all the pressure of, of Christianity. But but in other ways, it's not it's not that surprising, you know, because I think the stories like we appreciate them today, you know, the, the stories are good stories and you don't. You don't let go of a good story, you know, if you exactly if you can help it. So yeah, um, but he's a he's an amazing figure, Snorri. Like he's a yeah, you know, he's a he's wheel of dealing, getting involved in politics, you know, and um, supporting the Norwegian crown against Iceland, and he's getting you know, he he had a finger in every pie, and at the same time he was you know writing these treaties on poetry and mm-hmm. collecting together the mythology, and you know, and he, I mean, he's responsible for most of what we of the kind of codified stories that, that have come down to us, you know, so he's a, he's a hugely important figure. Yeah. And, and a lot of those stories that he wrote about, I think, um, you know, they, they went back and, and they find like runes or even just like pictures back in Scandinavia, correct? And even in like England too, that supplement and kind of confirm some of those stories that might've been their beliefs. Yeah. So there are, there are many myths that are kind of represented clearly, um, but there are a few, and one of them is the fishing of the, the world serpent by Thor. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and Snorri got the details of that down to the, you know, the attaching of an ox head to the, as the bait, you know, to the hook. And Thor pulls so hard that his foot goes through the bottom of the, the planks in the boat, you know. And then you find a there are carvings from the Viking age itself, you know, from some 400 years previously with Thor's foot poking through the boat and an ox head on the end of the line. So those kinds of things really give us, give us faith that a lot of what he was retelling was authentic. Um, but what we don't know is how much he, he massaged the stories, you know, to tell them in a kind of logical way and to, um, you know, make them a little bit more palatable to, a Christian society um, and putting order on them. Like that's the other thing about the, um, the kind of cultural weight of Christianity, you know, is it's got, it's got that order associated with it. You know, it's got the, the very set narrative of the, the creation and, you know, the, the, the central narrative of Christ and the, you know, the second coming and, and mm-hmm. um, heaven and, you know, um, and it's all written down and it's all the same in whatever Christian country um, you'd, you'd find in medieval Europe. And, Norse myth didn't have that, you know, um, and you have to wonder whether Snorri wasn't trying, wasn't influenced by that kind of linear narrative of Christian history, and he was trying to replicate that with his retelling of the myths, you know. So I, I, I think most kind of scholars of Old Norse would probably see Snorri's main kind of influence with the Norse myths was is putting it into that linear linear kind of story um, where you kind of move from from a to b where there's a kind of a clear history a clear progression of the of the stories um which you know 
um, that might not have existed and they it might not have been needed you know you can you can have all these stories washing around and and they can be contradictory and it doesn't matter you know if it's not if it's not a kind of linear history um, yeah. that but, yeah. did make it kind of difficult for us though when we're trying to look up the mythology when we're talking about the shows uh, it was just like oh well this story it's told this way this way that's that's one reason i really like this is just because it is it is kind of i guess a logical progression but it also it has kind of everything put in so even if you're like oh they they called aslog this in one reading i found on the internet or they called her this in another one it's it's all kind of there and it all kind of makes you understand why um, I, I tried to, yeah i tried to be comprehensive um but of course i mean it's going a lot further than snorri and kind of <laughs> in pulling together things that you know details from from narratives that were told in different parts of Europe, you know, and, and centuries apart and things. I took a lot of liberties with that. Um, but the one thing I didn't want to do was to add anything in, you know, that, okay. that didn't have a, a precedent in the medieval sources, um, which you have to be careful because there are these gaps, you know, and, and yeah. it's really tempting to fill them because, <laughs> you know, you, I, I guess we're, we're kind of so used to having stories that, follow a linear progression and don't have holes in them, you know, that you, you kind of, the temptation is always to, to fill in the details. And I think, I think Tolkien was, I think a lot of his projects, things like the Hobbit, I think that was a, an attempt to fill in, you know, details of the Sigurd legend, you know, and, and uh, his, yeah, a coming to terms with this literature that he was studying as well and, and teaching. Um, he was he was really interested in those missing missing parts of the the poetic edda, for example. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he even rewrote the poems that were lost, you know, in this kind of really curious, very archaic English English style. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, he was he was he was a creator, you know. He wanted to he wanted to add to what was already there. Um, so interesting. I think, yeah, in this, in this much more modest project, I just wanted to kind of gather things together um, to make them make sense, I suppose, because mm -hmm. it can be very confusing to have all these contradictions and to have, you know, different, different sources and, and uh, so much detail, you know, which is part of the, the joy of the myths, you know, but it's difficult to get a handle on it sometimes for, for a kind of general reader, I suppose. Well, didn't even Saxons, didn't they believe the same sort of faith before... The Norsemen came or before they converted to Christianity. That's that's where I get kind of fuzzy there. Yeah, well, I think you're, you're not the only one. Like, yeah. I think everyone, we don't know very much at all about what the Anglo-Saxons or you know, the early English believed. They had deities like Woden, you know, um, who, who was probably very similar to Odin. Um, but really, there's, there's, there's no evidence, you know, which is why, why Iceland is so such a curiosity, I suppose, because in England, nothing except things like the days of the week taking the gods' names, you know, that, that is a preservation, but none of the stories survived, you know, or, or very, very few of them. Um, and of course, that, that's what fascinated Tolkien as well. He wants to kind of write, a, write the mythology for England um, that didn't exist, you know. Um, I don't think people generally understand the... Um not only Norse myth, but the Viking culture, how far it reached and how its fingerprints, mm -hmm. how far it's gone and even down generations, how things have been affected. I mean, and just kind of a small example of that 
as we were talking about Tolkien right now, is I feel like there's so many things that Steve and I might read or watch that we're like, well, this was definitely influenced by Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Um, and then reading your book and doing uh, other research on Norse myths, it's like, well, thinking the same thing about Tolkien, you know, like, well, this is definitely where he got his influence. So it's kind of cool to see how far back these kind of influences go. Tolkien, I say to my students, you know, he was the greatest plagiarist of all time. Like he, <laughs> but he had, a, he had a precedent because he knew that, I mean, one thing about, we've talked about Snorri, but, but almost all the Eddic poetry, um, almost all the sagas that survived, they're, they're all anonymous, you know, and it was, there wasn't that same concept of, of one author having ownership over a work, you know, or putting the name to a work. It was a kind of collective literature, I suppose. Um, so Tolkien, Tolkien understood that and that gave him license to borrow and rework and do whatever he wanted without having to cite anyone, you know. Um, Didn't have and, to pay Disney I mean, off or I, anything. I found it fascinating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, he was, um, he always kind of denied, um, with a bit, of a, a bit of a glint in his eye, I think, he denied having sources, you know. Um, and he said, I think in, in his essay on fairy stories, he said, you know, um, don't go poking around in the soup to try and find the bones of the animal, you know, like mm. that made the soup. Like, what's the point of that? Um, so he was always trying to tell people to back off from looking at the sources, you know, but I think, I think it's really interesting for, for people who are into Tolkien to understand where he was getting his influences from. And um, when you see stuff like you read the, the story about the, um, the cursed gold, you know, and mm. the, the ring that's um, paid as a ransom, um, right. you know, and, and that, that caused this, this uh, figure Fafnir to turn into a dragon who took all the gold away and hid away from people jealously, you know, and um, like you can almost hear when you read that now, you can almost hear my precious, you know, precious, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, he was, he was, he was really basing particularly the Hobbit, I think very, very, very closely on, um, on these, medieval precedents and, and Beowulf of course you know had a, had sure. a huge impact as well but, yeah that is a good example yeah of the uh of that ring and it kind of however it passed on it seemed to have this kind of curse with it that yeah is, is and, very interesting and he was doing something very different to, to Wagner you know who'd slightly before Tolkien's time you know was created this the ring cycle um mm. and the the desire to the ring for the ring was all about this desire to have to for power, you know, to, to, to have power over other people. And for, for Tolkien, he kind of turned that on his head and, and the ring had this corrupting effect on people, which he saw in the, the Norse sources, but then his heroes are the ones who can resist that, that Absolutely. power. Um, so he's, he's not only kind of repeating or, or taking influence from the, from the stories. I think he's really trying to, to work through the morality of the stories and to, to kind of sometimes turn, turn things on their head as well. Like um, Frodo, um, his, his name kind of is related to peace, you know, and, and to a king who's mentioned king, right? resources yeah. for, for, for a period of peace. And there's nothing really more said about him um, apart from the fact that it was so peaceful during his reign that you could leave a gold ring on a heath and no one would, would pick it up, you know? Uh -huh. um, and again, you can kind of see you can see how, how that just would have sparked off an interest. And, and, you know, why haven't stories survived about this peaceful king, you know? Yeah. Um, why isn't that idolized? Yeah. That's yeah. So, uh, yeah. And then for Tolkien, his, his immediate thought was, was, you know, how can I kind of write that back in? Um, 
through my through my fiction, wow. I suppose. Yeah. That's interesting. And at the end of the book, you do talk quite a bit about kind of the how Norse myth has has impacted Germany, um, kind of in, in Nazi Germany, even. I don't know if yeah. you could kind of talk to that a little bit, too. Um, well, I suppose it's I mean, it was kind of bound up with um, romantic nationalism to begin with, you know, of, um, okay. kind of Scandinavian countries initially being very interested in their in their early history and, you know, trying to to basically use Iceland and all the sources that had survived in Iceland to kind of understand their their roots and their early beginnings and and um, but then this more problematic kind of branch of, of romantic nationalism in, in Germany was was trying to under, trying to um, I suppose see Icelandic material as being evidence of a Germanic culture a kind of pan-Germanic culture which had been erased by Christianity, you know, and um, so Germany could see its ancient roots in Norse myth and legend. Um, and, you know, what they read out of that was the need for violence, you know, the need for uh, for power over other people, for, you know, all the, all the kinds of things that that you can read into the myths if you if you want to read into the myths. But of course, it's ignoring that huge complexity, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, which like, I don't think there's a single Norse myth that says something straightforward, even when it seems like it's a straightforward statement of morality or belief, there's always something that undercuts it, you know, that problematizes it, that, that kind of, yeah. Um, and, and, and it wasn't just in, in, in 1930s Germany that that kind of misreading was happening. Like it's, 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 and it's happening still in, in, in more recent, the, the, the legacy is still ongoing of that kind of misreading of the, of the sources. Um, but obviously in, in 1930s Germany, it got, it got so implicated in the Third Reich and in, right. in Germany, the idea that Germany was going to rise from the ashes, you know, and, and reclaim its heroic heritage and all that kind of thing. And nobody was asking, nobody was consulting the Icelanders about this, you know, and, um, yeah. it was just a complete mis misuse of, of a heritage which belonged to Iceland if it belonged to anyone you know yeah, um, yeah. I wasn't even aware of that uh, until I read it in your book I, I wasn't aware of that from history yeah and I think I mean it had a big it had a big impact on the study of the of, of Norse culture I suppose for a long time because of course it was bound up with with the Nazis and with you know mm -hmm. with that misappropriation um, and, and thankfully people that's not what people think of now when you mention Thor or you mention you know yeah um, I think ultimately Tolkien's legacy is the is the is the greater one you know which um, is awesome yeah which is which is great and a, and a relief but but there's still a big shadow that hangs over the the discipline I think and it's why I think you have to be very careful when you read them, you know, not to, not yeah. to fall into the traps that were, that were fallen into. And there's so many myths and religions that, you know, you could misinterpret wrong. Um, and you see it in a lot of different other religions as well. Um, things being misinterpreted and, and even into violent ways. Um, yeah. Almost anything, but yeah, really anything I guess could be taken that way. Yeah. It was just something interesting that, you know, we never thought about when we learn about, 
you know, Nazi Germany in the US, we you know, don't talk about Norse mythology or its influence yeah. on anything really. We don't talk about Norse mythology really at all uh, here. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, so that's kind of one thing we're really glad the show is kind of just to learn about mm-hmm. the history of these things. And the show, the show is really clever with, um, with the way it uses mythology, I think, in particular. Um, I mean, there are, there, are, there are faults with the show, I think. Um, yeah. But it gets a lot of things right. And I think that they put in a lot of the myth and they put in a lot of the poetry, in fact, um, without making a big deal about it. You know, it's just kind of woven into the, to the plot. Um, and I think that's exactly how it, how it should be represented. You know, it wasn't like, right now we're going to tell a story, you know, and this is the story of, of Thor's fight with the, the Midgard serpent. It was just something that was part of their worldview and that was kind of tripping off their tongues and, and you know, influencing the way they, they moved in the world. Um, but I think they, they treated that with, with real sensitivity in the, in the Vikings show, and it's, it's really effective. I like the, the scene... Um, where they're trying to explain Ragnarok to Athelstan, yes. you know, um, and it's like a, it, it's like a kind of Andram production, you know, of, <laughs> of what they would have thought Ragnarok was about, you know, with all those kinds of um, gestures, with that storytelling, with the space, you know, the smoke in the room and the um, disorientation, and, and you know, I think that's I think that's a really effective way of showing how how these stories might have might have worked, you know, and we. We just don't know how they would have, they would have been, would have been performed originally. Um, but what do you think about that seer? What do you think about the seer? That that's a bit weird. I don't know where the whole <laughs> licking the hand comes from. And, uh, okay, I didn't know if that was like a real uh, thing. <laughs> and uh, I think, I mean, I'm, I don't know why they didn't make it a woman for a start. Um, because okay. we women are associated with fate. You know, they're associated with. Um, the Valkyries, obviously, um, but also with um, with prophecy. Um, so there are these these women called the the, the vulva or the the, the seeresses. You know, mm-hmm. um, Odin goes to to a seeress to tell him about the history of the world. You know, um, so they always seem to have been the ones with the longest memories and the mm. the greatest knowledge. So I don't know I don't know why they didn't take that opportunity because they're very good at you know putting putting strong female characters into, into Vikings, but that seemed to be a misstep for me. You know, I don't know why he was a man. Um, and the whole, I mean, yeah, the, the whole stuff with Uppsala, you know, and the kind of sacrifices and like, that's all a bit, there are temples, you know, which is really, there's no historical evidence for at all. Um, and it, it seems more like a kind of organized religion. So I don't think that was as effective, but in other places gotcha. where they just kind of, you know, um, I, I'm trying to remember exactly the, the plot of some of the, the Vikings episodes I've seen, but there, there's one where a guy called Harvard, right, comes to comes to Kattegat. Yeah, and, yes, yes, all the yes, men yes, are yes. away, and so he's, yeah. he's looking yeah. up at everyone. And and that's one of the names for for Odin, you know, and and um, he's he's in disguise uh, as Harvard, and um, and so. That, that's never kind of made explicit, you know, that he's a kind of Odin, Odin yeah. figure. Um, but I suppose people will then go and kind of look up, look him up, you know, and they'll, they'll come to that, to that story. Um, and I think, I think that again was a very effective kind of storyline of this stranger just arriving, you know, nobody knows who he is and, 
and that's how Odin liked to, to move around the world as well, you know, in disguise and um, causing trouble and... I wish it would have like had some sort of more acknowledgement of it, I guess. Cause he just kind of came some weird stuff happened mm. and it just, you never saw him again. And then Odin does show up when Ragnar dies to tell all yeah. of his sons, but he's the old Odin and he's missing the eyes. The got typical, the raven. Yeah. Typical, yeah. The Gandalf, 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 <laughs> Gandalf Odin. Um, yeah, but but then I suppose that that is quite true to the sources. Odin does just turn up and, and disappear, you know, and, and he doesn't. I mean, there's one story where he gets he gets roasted on a spit, you know, yeah. um, until he until he reveals who he is, um, right. and he's uh, he's always getting into these riddle contests, you know, where the the loser will lose their will lose their neck, um, will lose their head, and. Um, he likes to have very high stakes in everything in everything he does, um, but yeah, he just he appears and he he disappears at will, and and he he kind of changes uh, allegiances, like even halfway through a battle, you know, switching switching sides or deciding he doesn't support this person anymore, and, and they die, you know. And so he's, I think, almost as much as Loki, he's a kind of he's a figure you wouldn't put a lot of faith in, you know. Yeah. For a guy you call All Father, he's he's pretty uh, shifty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then the All Father thing and the prominence of Odin could well be a Christian mm. influence as well. You know, of the, yeah. the need to have one deity above above the rest. Um, that's that's interesting that we yeah. don't think about maybe how that Christian influence. You've talked a lot about it today about how that Christian mm. influence kind of filtered it to how we perceive these stories. So that, that's a that's an interesting thing we need to think about. Yeah. And there are stories as well, which, you know, you, you wonder how they did survive into, you know, in, into the Christian period, you know, these, these really outrageous tales. And, you know, um, I think, I think one of my favorites is probably the, um, the master builder story, you know, which oh, yeah. tells you a lot of what you, what you need to know about Norse myth, really, including how, how crazy it is sometimes. <laughs> um, but the very idea that, so, so this story is about um, you. You know it, obviously, but um, feel free. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's about a, a builder, a mysterious builder who turns up, um, which is quite an Odin move in itself. You know, he turns up unannounced, um, and he says to the gods, "I can build a wall to protect Asgard. You know, to protect your home, and uh, I want you to give me to give me Freyr, um, Freya, sorry, and to give me um, the sun and the moon as payment." Um, and the gods kind of get together and, and in typical, you know, immoral style, they say, well, we're not going to give him this reward, but we'll get him to do the work anyway, you know, and they, they agree to the deal thinking that it's impossible, but he has a horse who helps him um, and the wall is almost, almost completed and Asgard is almost surrounded. Um, and then the gods panic and they blame Loki as they usually do. Um, and Loki has to come up with a plan and, and, you know, he turns himself into a, into a mare and he leads away the stallion and, you know, months, months later, a, a stallion with eight legs is born, you know, which becomes Odin's horse. Yeah. And, um, and the gods break their, their vows, you know, um, to, to prevent a disaster, to prevent losing the sun and the moon and, and Freya. But they, they are the ones who, who, behave badly in that story um and i think 
the fact that the wall is never completed, you know, that, that there's always a gap in the wall, that, that's really characteristic of Nor Norse myth as well. And the gods always trying to do things, but never quite managing to, to perfect whatever it is that they're, they're trying. You know, there's always a kind of chink in their armor, a yeah. flaw in their plan, you know, and um, yeah, I, I, just, I just think that that story has got, has got so many levels to it, you know, so much depth to it. Yeah. You can definitely see where the show Vikings got a lot of its influence on how the plots are and stuff. Because for, for me, when I first started watching, we started watching it after The Last Kingdom. Mm -hmm. and But Vikings was so much different. There was, you would see myth happening right in front of them. And, uh, and plus two, there was just a lot more betrayals and tricking and flipping mm -hmm. sides and that. And to me, I was just like, wow, like these, like, were these people really like this? You know, like, why are they, why are they like this all the time? But then after reading these stories, it's like, wow, that's just, these, these were their, you know, their myths. So, yeah. <laughs> that's the way, that's the way they did it. And, and, you know, Sigurd was the, the greatest hero that ever lived, you know, and, and his <laughs> great, his great battle was, was to kill a dragon by hiding in a pit, you know, and stabbing it in the stomach. Like, it's not the, it's not the kind of typical heroic, story like totally um, but that's that's kind of what i suppose what was valued was not you know we always think of the, the vikings running headlong into battle you know um but they they used guile i think as much as they used they totally. used the bombs you know that's an interesting example too because i think yeah he's tricking the dragon but wasn't his like father-in-law i think it was his father-in-law or something was trying to trick him too and maybe he'd die yeah. when he stabbed the dragon, right? Like, and then yeah, Odin helped him, right? Father, um, Reagan, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, he he drinks some dragon blood, and the birds tell him that Reagan is trying to trick him, and so he kills his foster father, you know, without a moment's hesitation. Like, um, so yeah, they're, they're again, they're kind of they're all tricky characters, and they're not they're not the kind of heroes that you'd find elsewhere in medieval literature, you know, the kind of Arthurian heroes with their, with their strict code of code of honor or, you know, um, and they, they seem to have valued that in, in some of the stories, you know, about, I think in Vikings in the siege of Paris, they, they had that trick where Ragnar pretends to be dead in a coffin, you know, yeah. some historical basis for that, not, not associated with Ragnar, but, and we've heard um, Heston, right? That's what. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and the cat and mouse they played in England as well. With um, you know, the the English would kind of gather together an, an army and go to face the Vikings, and then the Vikings would sail off and attack somewhere else. You know, and they weren't they weren't these kinds of um, they weren't rushing to their deaths. You know, to, yeah. to take their place in Valhalla. They were they were using using every trick up their sleeve. You know, to try and survive another day you know and and um and to win through whatever whatever means it took um both so, shows yeah. put a real emphasis on uh the the danes the vikings whatever vernacular they want to use getting to valhalla though and mm -hmm. we we see uh in the first season of last kingdom you, you probably saw this as well is uh one of the big things i guess for them they, they had to hold the weapon as they died to go to valhalla and then uh, but I guess Vikings, sometimes they show there's there's different ways. It's just as long as you die, uh, like in a more honorable way, I'm thinking like the, the first episode of the first season, mm -hmm. it's even the guy who is a thief, he just has to get his head cut off the right way or something. Yeah. Like what, what all went into, I guess, getting to Valhalla? What was 
Do you, what, what do you know of that? Um, well, I think that there are a few things we can go on. Um, it's not entirely clear, but it wasn't, you didn't have to die with a sword in your hands in, in the heat of battle, you know, like there's um, um, a famous uh, Viking, Haakon the Good, you know, uh, king, king of Norway, um, he, he died from, um, you know, a, a wound that went septic after the battle. Um, and there's a, there's a poem written about him being invited into Valhalla by the Valkyries, you know, and the greatest warrior um, that's ever come to Valhalla is, is, is entering, you know, and the, I think, um, I think that idea of actually having to die in the heat of battle probably, probably wasn't, um, wasn't the only way into Valhalla, but I suppose hell is reserved for people who, who die of sickness or old age, you know, um, so and it's, uh, Gods also go there, you know, Balder, Odin's um, right. son and the, the, the greatest, you know, the, uh, the most shining God, you know, the, the, the most kind of perfect God in a way he goes to hell um, because he's killed by his, his brother. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't, I, I think it's very hard to tell exactly what, what gave you <laughs> license to go into Valhalla, but I think it had to be, I suppose it had to be a, a death you'd faced um, head on, you know, um, interesting but uh but yeah i don't know the the maybe the sword in the hand thing is, isn't a bad interpretation well, well the way they do it too is uh it, it's not even if you die in battle necessarily as long if you die in bed and as long as you got like a sword or an axe on, on hand sword. then you're then you're good you're 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 safe then yeah yeah maybe um <laughs> they make a lot in vikings don't they have that in the first series of that old guy who who begs Ragnar to come on the trip with him because he wants to die in, in battle. And not yeah, put it yeah. In but yeah, I mean, the, the Vikings, is, I think it's worth remembering that the Vikings were just a small segment of Norse society, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe the, maybe every Viking desired to get to Valhalla, but, but you know, every Norse person, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not so sure, you know? That's an, um, yeah. And I don't think there were, was always the opportunity to die in, in battle either, you know, as, as much as they went out raiding and, and, uh, and put themselves in harm's way. Um, if you were a farmer in Norway, you pro- probably lived a relatively peaceful life, you know. Yeah, that is interesting. There's one thing, just a kind of a small thing I, I saw in the book where Siggy um, killed a slave. And then like the next line says something like, but he didn't announce it. So it was murder. I was wondering if you could talk about what kind of what that meant or what their law was or how that might have. Yeah, I I think, um, I mean, I'm not, uh, my my knowledge of this is a bit hazy, but I know that you, you were supposed to in Iceland and and in the Icelandic law law codes, you were supposed to announce a death Um, and you could only go a certain number of farms, you know, before (laughs) it became murder. If you hadn't, if you hadn't announced it. So that was in Vikings Vikings as well. Yeah. 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 Like you um, went three houses. You could only go two before you could tell someone. Yeah, well that someone's read read that. That's interesting. <laughs> we'll that. Um yeah, that, I mean that's interesting because I suppose the idea of murder was bound up with with not taking responsibility for it, you know. Uh-huh. Um and but but then a lot of heroes in Iceland like um Greta the strong, you know, um who he he killed uh, a teenager when he was a teenager, you know, over a bag of food and he didn't claim responsibility for it, you know, and then he was, he was exiled. So wow. um, the, the heroes 
I mean, the gods never live up to some moral standard, um, but the heroes as well, you know, most right. often they have a really inauspicious beginning. Um, you know, they, like Greta is, is cantankerous and, you know, assaults his father and flays the skin off the back of a horse, you know, for animal cruelty for no reason. And he's, he's a really obnoxious character. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't really know where I'm going with that. Oh, but yeah, no. <laughs> Um, it's just but, so, so interesting. Yeah. 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 How their law might've been. Um, just <laughs> if you'd say, yeah, I killed this guy. All right. Yeah, could you, <laughs> could you just, un- <laughs> just go around murdering people, I guess, if you, if you just, as long as you reported it though. <laughs> well, I think, I think that it was more about the penalty that would be applied, you know? Right. Right. I think the thing, the thing is as well is that the Vikings are often depicted as being these kinds of, lawless barbarians you know um, yeah who lived lived by the law of the sword kind of thing and that that couldn't be further from the truth it was the the legal system was was highly developed you know and, and in iceland particularly they they didn't have a centralized government or authority figure like a king or judiciary you know to the thing that held that society together was law um, yeah. and so there were you know, it was a very com- complex legal system with, with different punishments to match different crimes. And, you know, there were different levels of outlawry. You know, you could, um, if it was lesser outlawry, you had to go away for three years and then you could come back. But, you know, if you got a higher level of outlawry, you had to leave forever. No one was allowed to help you, you know, so um, you had to kind of sneak into a, into a ship and, and try and escape the country. And, you know, um, and then there were different penalties for helping an outlaw and for, um, so it was very, I mean, it was the kind of the, the web that held the fabric of society together, yeah. I suppose. Um, so later think, seasons of Vikings seem like it's, it's more anarchy. You can just kill whoever, whenever there's no penalty, <laughs> but they, they start out though, like, Oh, here's some laws and here's that. But yeah, later on, mm-hmm. that's, I think that's where a lot of people get that impression too, is maybe just from that, those, that media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I mean, the, the Dane law, you know, which um, when you think about what that word means, it's the, it's the place where the, the laws of the Danes applied in, in England, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't this lawless place like the, the Wild West, you know, it was just, it was just, that was the law of the, that the Vikings held, which was different to Anglo-Saxon law, you know. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so a very, a very kind of, and, and I think that, also, that, that idea of, um, like I, I know you talked to somebody about um, uh, one of the directors of Last Kingdom about sailing on the, the Viking ship. Uh, yes. uh, yeah, and we wanted to ask you about that as well, yeah. since we see that that's uh, a hobby of yours. Yeah, I've, I've been with them a few, a few summers, um, and, uh, and it's a great experience. Like, if you, if you get a chance to, to oh, we want on to. the Viking ship, I'd, I'd recommend it for sure. Um, and I mean, if there's any way to, to get a bit closer to understanding what it was like to be, you know, what they felt, <laughs> yeah. um, sleeping in those cramped quarters, you know, and, and, and uh, feeling really vulnerable in the middle of the, the ocean. Um, but to sail a Viking ship with that many people in such close proximity, um, all working together, you know, pulling the right rope at the right time and all rowing together and all, you know, again, that idea of the Vikings being these kinds of, brutes you know who were burying axes in each other's heads the slightest insult you know and and you know the complete anarchy reigning you wouldn't be able to sail a viking ship in under those circumstances so i think in fact 
they were probably very highly regimented, you know, and, and I suppose the, the organization and the discipline of, of, of working in those small units on board a Viking ship would have translated into how they were fighting on the battlefield, you know, in very, very close knit groups, you know, mm. um, used to working together, used to following orders and commands and probably being very closely connected in terms of the place you grew up and the, the kin ties and all those kinds of things. Um, so I think that is what made them into such a formidable fighting force, you know, as much as this kind of reckless abandonment to, to death yeah. and <laughs> race towards Valhalla, you know? Oh, yeah. when, when you are on your, the Viking ship, though, where do you go raiding at? Like, where's... <laughs> you go and uh, raid the ice cream from various picturesque... <laughs> that sounds like my kind of raid. That's villages, a good raid. Yeah. Um, no, they... Um, that they often kind of tie it in with um, medieval fairs and that kind of thing happening around around Denmark and, and Sweden, um, but they do they do quite a lot of uh, kind of research as well. I mean, it's it's the Viking Ship Museum in Roskilde that's um, mm-hmm. reproduced this this ship um, using the authentic tools, you know, the authentic materials, doing everything down to the you know um, down to using pine tar that they've made themselves you know and and, uh, yeah. and all the paint even is is made in the the traditional way um so they're kind of living living museums you know and ways of testing um how the technology worked you know and how how do you sail one of these things like we we can reconstruct it but how did it work you know so the whole time you're kind of you're testing out refining the 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 sailing capabilities of the of the ship you know so um, and and one of the things that it opened my mind to was that idea of of how necessary it is for 70 people to work absolutely in tandem you know um, it's incredible so that that would have translated into the battlefield you know and the shield wall and and so that's another thing is the shield wall is something that's depicted in, in you know, both shows we've watched. Um, mm. um, could you maybe just talk a little bit about what the shield wall is all about? Yeah. Well, the, the shield wall is, uh, it wasn't just the Vikings, you know, it was right. the kind of standard operating procedure really um, in it, certainly in, in England as well. I, I can see why they've made it a Viking thing, you know, because the, okay. they need some kind of shortcut to showing how the Vikings were such a formidable fighting force, you know, um, but really that was, you know, you, you linked, you linked shields with the person next to you um, and you braced against the, the opposing shield wall, you know, and, and tried to, to cut through and, and, and make a gap and break the wall. Um, but it would have, I think it would have involved a lot of pushing and shoving and, and hacking and, you know, the, the most kind of gruesome close quarter fighting you, you can imagine. Um, and I think they do that. They do that quite well in in the Last Kingdom, from what I remember in the first mm. the first series. They they really show that you know just how close that fighting was, you know, and how um, how necessary it was for everyone to be working in unison as well, you know, because if if somebody if somebody turns tail and runs, the shield wall breaks, and you know the battle is lost. Like it, it was, um, and in some cases, certainly there were there were these groups of Vikings who were used to working really closely together and the Anglo-Saxon feared, you know, who were f- essentially farmers who'd been gathered from the local area and, and, you know, took down the ancestral weapon and, and were kind of put into some order and then had to face these, these professional soldiers um, or 
you know, professional fighters in the summertime anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think the, the, um, the depiction of the shield wall in, in Last Kingdom is good. In the Vikings, there's, um, I have a bit of a problem with how the, the English or the Anglo-Saxons are represented because okay. I think to draw some kind of distinction between the cultures, they've, they've made the costumes very different, you know, and they've made the, the shields very different. And, you know, the Anglo-Saxons are wearing uniforms. Um, you know, they've been supplied with identical helmets and, you know, they're all wearing the same color and they're all, um, and I think other than having different haircuts, you know, they, they would have, uh, they would have looked pretty similar, I think. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I think you make a good point about how um, when the Vikings come over, these are all warriors that are coming over and like mm-hmm. fighting farmers a lot of the time, sometimes back then. And I think the books, the Last Kingdom books kind of talk about that a lot. But was there anything else that like the Vikings kind of, that made them formidable when they kind of came to England? Well, I think, um, I mean, the Vikings were farmers as well, a lot of them, you know. Um, yeah. They, they were just go, going on a Viking, was, was going um, going raiding in the summer, you know, it was something you okay. did to, to supplement your, your income, I suppose, <laughs> in modern terms. Um, but yeah, they, they wouldn't necessarily have been professional soldiers, but they okay. they they would have been used to, to fighting together, you know, and to um, certainly, you know, um, certainly there would have been formidable opponents for, for Anglo-Saxon farmers, you know, who'd been, who'd been kind of gathered together. There were professional, professional soldiers in, in, in England as well, you know, the, the Huskars, the, the um, kind of professional group of people around the, around the Earl or around the King, you know, um, so I suppose a lot of the, the battles would have had these kind of semi-professional soldiers, very well armed, you know, but then also a lot of, a lot of farmers who were, who were poorly armed, you know, and, um, they probably wouldn't have been put at the center of things at the center of the shield wall, you know, but, um, but what made the Vikings so formidable? I mean, the ships was a huge thing, right? They, hmm. there was nothing, I mean, the, the English caught up, particularly with Alfred the Great um, and, and, yeah. and uh, his, his successes, they caught up with the, the ship technology. But for a long time, Viking ships were, you know, superior to anything else that, that was on the seas. And they had um, very uh, shallow keels, you know, so they could go up shallow rivers, they could, they could beach the boats. Um, okay. So they were very, very mobile. Um, they could be rowed, they could be sailed, you know, you know, they took, they could take a lot of hits as well. Um, but I think that mobility is really something that, that um, made the Vikings so formidable because mm, they could, if they didn't like the odds of a battle, you know, they could get on the ships and they could, they could sail out of the estuary and they could be somewhere else in England by the next day, you know, and then what do you do with a land-based army then that takes three days to march somewhere that the Vikings could get in a, you know, in half a day, uh-huh. <laughs> like it's, um, I think, I think that's, that was a problem for all the, the kings in England, including Alfred, you know, was trying to pin the Vikings down to a, to a pitch battle often, you know, um, and again, that slightly goes against the, inter- the, the assumption we have about the Vikings, you know, any sniff of a battle, like they'd be, they'd be howling, you know, and running off to, to, to go and fight, but no, if they if if they didn't like their chances, they they'd leave. And 
and I think they were probably quite precious about their their ships as well. You know, um, mm. they were incredibly, I suppose, expensive in in modern terms. You know, huge resources went into in often quite poor areas in 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 marginal farming land. You know, in Norway. Um, to gathering together all the resources needed to create this this fantastic ship, um, and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't risk that ship again in in the kind of confrontation that yeah. could end up with you having no way to leave this hostile land you'd entered, um, and you know, um, no means of escape, and, and losing that investment you put in um, as well. So, so I think the Vikings probably sailed at away more often than they than they engaged in battle um, that is interesting but, and are a lot of the archaeological digs don't they find like ships were part of burial sites and things like that too yeah so the, the ship burials i mean there were there were both people people buried in ships um, mm-hmm. um as a clearly as a sign of status but maybe also as a sign of of some kind of means of transitioning to the afterlife you know um mm. the ship as a as a kind of yeah metaphor, I suppose, for passing passing over. Um, but you find yeah in in Sweden there there are some fantastic ship settings, you know, like stone, um, not stone circles, but stones in the shape of a of a ship. Um, okay. And that seems to have served the same function, you know, even though there was no actual ship buried there, they were still signalling some kind of progress to the afterlife, you know. Um, so the the ship meant so many different things on so many different levels to to that culture i think it was probably the most the most important bit of technology most important symbol of of that culture really yeah so we just kind of brought up alfred a little bit too um who is a main central figure of the last kingdom Mm -hmm. um i don't know if you could just talk a little bit about who this guy was because we had never heard of alfred the great um and after hearing about some of the things that he did i I feel like he should be talked about a lot and, and his daughter Ethelfled and his, his son Edward, they were also just so influential in that time um, yeah. in their interactions with, with the Danes and the Vikings. Um, and is yeah. that something you like would have learned about in school growing up or? No, no, I, I would have first come across that at, at university, I suppose. Um, he's, he's such a central figure to the, to that period, you know, and it's, um, it's difficult to, to, Kind of underplay his achievements, really. Um, I think. I think a lot of. I mean, he had a great propaganda machine as well, um, particularly in his biographer Asser, who, who um, you know, wrote wrote his his life shortly afterwards, um, and certainly portrayed him in a in a very good light. Perhaps at the expense of his brothers, you know, and his father, mm. um, who who were perhaps as successful as as as, as rulers. Um, but no, I mean, he was he was thrust into these circumstances, you know, where. The Viking threat had just escalated and escalated, and and you know he found himself in the last independent kingdom um, in England, um, and he was fighting for his for the survival of of of, uh, of Wessex, I suppose, um, and that's probably him hiding in the marshes. You know, there's there's definitely some truth to that, but but how much of that is um, you know Asa kind of embellishing the the dire situation um okay. but certainly you know it was an existential threat the, the 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 viking the great heathen army um and he he not only kind of successfully repelled 
that threat, you know, and and, uh, and secured Wessex as a as a surviving kingdom. Um, but then he was very interested, and that's where I kind of admire admire his legacy the most, I suppose, is is he tried to instigate a, a, a kind of reformation in the, in the culture and the, the language and the literature. Um, he, he may not have been translating himself, but he certainly oversaw a process of translating Latin works into, into Old English um, because he said, you know, learning has decayed to such a degree in England that there are no, um, you know, there are no longer clergymen who can, who can understand Latin, you know. Um, in in Wessex because of the the Viking raids, you know, and the the trials and tribulations of the kingdom. Um, so he he not only kind of militarily secured the kingdom, but he he really um, pushed uh, a cultural renaissance, I suppose, particularly in the writing of of English um, for the wow. for the first time. Seriously, um, he oversaw the the legal code. You know, he. he instigated a series of um, fortified towns around around his kingdom he you know um, some people talk about him as being the founder of the of the navy um, but I, I don't think that's quite true but certainly he was he was a, a state builder you know um, okay. he wasn't content just with with seeing off the Vikings and and you know um, securing his lot he, he really had much much greater ambitions I think um, I think he probably modelled himself. He, he went to Rome as a, as a, as a child, mm-hmm. and he stayed in with his father in, in the court of um, of the Franks. You know, um, and he probably modelled himself on on you know those those Christian Christian kingdoms yeah. um, in 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 Europe, the Christian kings in Europe, um, and also on the the kind of uh, the Old Testament kings like like Solomon, I suppose, um, but. I think something in, in the last kingdom that they that they pick up on, which is is really good. Again, I think is is um, his his medical issues, yeah. his frailty, um, his bowel disease. Yeah, yeah, and I know some stuff has been written trying to identify exactly what he had. You know, like Crohn's disease or or some other um, some other ailment that kind of bothered him for for his whole life. Um, yeah. I think that's a, another really interesting facet of this this character. You know, he's totally he's seeing off the Vikings. He's translating difficult Latin texts into Old English. You know, he's reforming everything around him uh, at the same time as as dealing with this what sounds like a very serious illness. You know, that he could only only kind of eat gruel and um, couldn't couldn't stomach anything else. Um, and he was he was extremely devout as well. Um, mm-hmm. They perhaps overplay that a little bit in the the Last Kingdom. Um, you know, he was he was as much a, a warrior king as a as a you know as a kind of. I think they portray him as a bit of a, a clergyman, don't they? That's that's kind of had had yeah. kingship thrust upon him, maybe. Um, but uh, but he may well have been have never been intended for for the throne. You know, he was he was the youngest of a. Of a Right. Large number of brothers, um, and he, you know, he may. It's possible he was intended to go into holy orders, you know, and to, mm-hmm. the the stories about him being given a book of uh, a book of poems by his mother, you know, when he was very young, and he had to kind of learn them off by heart. And, and he, I mean, again, that's his biographer trying to portray him in a certain way, but mm-hmm. um, he was he was very interested in learning and and in 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 the arts as well as yeah. in, uh, 
you know, in in the kind of practicalities of running a kingdom and seeing off the, the Vikings. So yeah, an extraordinary figure, I think. And it's great that he's, he comes up in the Vikings, doesn't he? I haven't seen yeah, him. He does. Yeah, yeah, he does. But they have two different stories of how mm-hmm. he kind of comes into power. In Last Kingdom, it's because his brother was killed in battle. Um, and that um, Ethelwald, the, the son of uh, Ethelred, um, was not fit to be king. But in Vikings, I think that it's just kind of like a political like Mildred family thing. Kills him. Or Judith Judith would Judith, rather have him it. be oh, king. Oh my gosh, I hate Judith. Oh uh, yeah, well yeah. Um they both they both you know treat history with a bit of license there. Like um Athelwald yeah. in, in the Last Kingdom, he's kind of a great rival to, to Alfred, isn't he? Um, yeah. Yeah. And he, he attempts a coup or something. It, I think it was actually after after Alfred died, that Athelwald kind of came back on the scene and mm-hmm. you know, tried to try to claim the kingdom from Alfred's son Edward. Um, so they've kind of conflated history a little bit there. Um, yeah, I think we heard too that Athelwald was probably actually just a little kid, maybe when Alfred came into power yeah. too, instead of being somebody who was old enough to be king, but was yeah. just you know not a good person or something. But he wasn't a viable pretender to the throne, I think, um, particularly in that period, you know, when, when yeah. they needed someone, I mean, Alfred had, had had combat experience, you know, and had led the, the army with his, with his brothers. Um, yeah. And I mean, they, they condensed it down obviously, but, but there were, there were three brothers who ruled before him, you know, um, all with very short reigns. Um, so he was the last of them really, you know, he was the, uh, yeah. I think the the story with Judith um, is because um, Alfred's brother uh, married Judith, who was married to his father. Um, so that's where they get the kind of the incest story. I think I yeah. think Alfred's biographer is a bit um, uh, he's very critical of of that um, mm. as it was it was scandalous, you know. Um, but I, I think they've really they've really run with it in Vikings, haven't they? Yeah, they they, <laughs> they love that Vikings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know if like one was more true than the other about how he came into power. Um, I think I think the Last Kingdom generally is more historically accurate. You know. Yeah, that's what we found too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he did. He came came to power when his brother died. Yeah. In, in the in the third season, you haven't seen that, but. He uh he reveals he's writing these chronicles about his time as king and the Danes and, and everything like yeah. that. Um, is that Brother Astor's work then? Is that what you've you've been saying? Well, he kind of he um he gathered this kind of crack team around him, you know, of um like he he got scholars over from the continent, um mm. from from France and and uh, and. Asa was Welsh, you know, um, his biographer was Welsh. He got people from Mercia, you know, he kind of gathered anyone he, he could really to kind of kickstart this, this reform of learning. Um, and I think the, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles were, were probably part of that revival of, of mm-hmm. learning, you know, um, whether instigated by, by Alfred or by those around him or by, you know. The, there was a, I suppose, a, a desire to, um, to chronicle the movements of the Vikings as well, you know, and, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is, is quite interested in where they're going when they're not in England as well, you know, so what they're doing on the continent, um, how the how the Franks are dealing with the, the threat of the Vikings, you know, and um, Alfred in one of the works he translates um, 
which is a, a Rosius's history um, against the pagans, but it's basically a, a history of of, uh, uh, of Europe before before the before Rome was Christianized. Um, and Alfred inserts this little um, these two travelogues, you know, from um, from Norse traders who've come to his kingdom and told him about Norway uh, and told him about the Baltic, you know, and he kind of he inserts those stories about the places where the Vikings came from, you know, into his history of the world. So he's really trying to, he's really trying to understand his, his enemy as well, I think, and understand mm. the, the threat um, that was posed. So I suppose Alfred and, and, um, and the kind of Ragnar figure from the Vikings, you know, they're in some ways that they're, they're interesting because they're, they're both curious about the other yeah. yeah, the culture, you know, or curious about about their adversary, um, and you never. I mean, Vikings then they're generally never scornful. I think of the of the cultures that they encounter, or very rarely they're they're always trying to learn. You know, they're they're kind of they're they're shocked sometimes at, at what they what they find, or you know, they they find <laughs> something hard to believe. You know, like in Lindisfarne, there are all these. Yeah. These monks walking around without weapons, you know, with all this treasure around. What them. the heck? Um, <laughs> yeah, they they make not, they talk about yeah. Vikings, but like, why are they leaving their gold out on these tables? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that that's often misinterpreted, I think, as a kind of um, a pagan hatred of Christians. But mm. but I mean, it was I think it was just you've got these undefended places, you know, monasteries and and religious houses that that are full of treasure that aren't defended, you know, um, once you're successful in raiding one of them, you're, you're going to look out for them, you know, and you're going to, you're going to target them. So, um, I think the idea of a kind of religious war is a, is, 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 um, is a very old fashioned one now, but, um, but yeah, I forget where we started with that, with that question. No, no. But, <laughs> no, but back great. to, uh, back to Ragnar though, uh, you, you've said that he's mostly fictional, uh, but his sons, his sons are historically accurate. Could you maybe elaborate more on that and help clear that up then? Yeah, well, the, the, his sons um, kind of enter into history as the, the leaders of the great heathen army. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in Vikings and in some of the sources as well, um, it's said that this is revenge for the death of their father Ragnar. Um, but, you know, whether whether there's some kind of distortion of history, some kind of truth there or not is, is very hard to tell. Um, but certainly Ivar, you know, was the leader of the, the great army until he kind of, he disappears at some point and he may reappear in Ireland, you know, he may have, um, may have popped up there as, yeah. um, and Uber of as course, Imar or something, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. He wrote, yeah. Yeah. And he founded, you know, there was a, an Ivar who founded a dynasty in, in Ireland, you know, but ah. whether it's the same, the same figure or not is unclear. Um, Uber, yeah. Fitzirk, um, mm-hmm. And Bjorn, Bjorn Ironside as well. There was a Bjorn who, who raided Spain, you know, northern Spain and, and sailed into the Mediterranean and overwintered in, in the south of France, you know, and, and tried to attack Rome, um, but didn't reach it. Um, so these, these figures, I mean, whether they were brothers or not is not clear. Um, whether Ragnar was their father, whether he existed isn't clear, but they, they all have some kind of historical basis, you know, so... Um, I think the the great heathen army is like it's tempting to think about it as being a you know this one army under one commander you know that was very um, homogeneous and but I think it was probably more like a a gathering together of lots of people with a 
you know, a vaguely similar purpose, you know, with competing. I mean, they, they have the brothers competing with each other, right, in Vikings. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But I think there would have been lots of different factions within that great heathen army, you know, and it was always splitting off into, into different groups, you know, and, and reforming and Vikings were joining them from elsewhere. And, you know, it, it's a very complicated situation. I think that's, that's hard to kind of track through the historical chronicles. Um, but they, they did exist in some form, yeah, the, some the form. sons of Ragnar, so, yeah. That's fascinating. It's just... Ragnar Lothbrok is such a fascinating character just in general. And, and I think it's almost, it's even cooler that he might, he might've existed, maybe most likely not, or, mm. but do you think there was, you know, somebody he was based on maybe like just a great, like, yeah. like an amalgamation of people even. But there was certainly a, um, a guy who, who raided, um, raided Paris, you know, um, and uh, he was, <laughs> he was famous for, for hanging 111 prisoners, you know, that he captured in a raid on an, on an island in the Seine. Um, and he went back to Denmark shortly afterwards and died from dysentery, um, according to, mm. to one source, at least. Um, a, a colleague of mine has, um, has suggested that, that that's where his nickname, Lothbrok, you know, which means kind of shaggy breeches or... Yeah. Or, um, <laughs> she thinks that might be a very, very descriptive... Um, <laughs> you know, allusion to his dysentery. You know, oh my so, goodness. So, um, but then, then there's this kind of legend that builds up around that nickname as well, that he, you know, um, he fought the dragon with this suit that he'd covered in tar and rolled in the mm-hmm. sand with, you know, which does, doesn't make any sense at all. But um, <laughs> that was perhaps a later attempt to, to make sense of the, of the nickname, which is, which is hard to understand. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sure there was a figure um, but it's just whether whether it was the same Ragnar who appears in different sources and, and you know how how much of it's legend and how much of it is, is loosely based on history. But but it's really clever to use that figure, you know, as the premise for a a show about the Viking period because because it gives you license, you know, you can you can play with it in a way that you perhaps mm. can't with Alfred and the leaders of the great heathen army, you know, because a lot more is known about that about that period of history but but ragnar is kind of coming out of the mists of time you know and yeah uh, so it's kind of the perfect one yeah, to... yeah. that's do you know who went to linda's farm then because that that was a real incident right it was yeah um but it was like they've conflated the chronology massively in vikings um so uh right right ragnar i think the ragnar i was talking about who who raided paris you know who who sailed at the seine um that was in the mid ninth century and the first raid on Lindisfarne you know was at the end of the uh, was at the end of the the eighth century um hmm. so it it's not it's certainly Ragnar wasn't involved with the, right. with the raid yeah. on Lindisfarne you know um and it's a bit it's a bit um of a liberty I think to to say that there were a group of Vikings who suddenly discovered this land to the to the west you know that was that was the British Isles like they, they knew about it. They'd been trading. They'd been, you know, there'd been connections for a long time um, before the raid on Lindisfarne happened. But certainly that would have been a, I mean, that seems to have marked a massive escalation suddenly in, in these um, in these raids across the North Sea. Um, hmm, very soon afterwards, the Vikings are popping up in Ireland, you know, in the Scottish Isles and raiding all over the, the, the coast of Britain. And now, um, we had a recent guest on, plays a character in The Last Kingdom who's Irish, and he did a lot of 
research into um, his his own character. So, what kind of he, he he mentioned something about how Dublin was kind of a Viking trade center, or even maybe a slave trade center. Could you talk about the Irish history of Vikings a little bit too? Yeah, well, they they I mean Dublin became the the kind of center, not just of Viking Ireland, but of um, a Viking Empire really in the in the Irish Sea and in the Scottish mm. Isles and, and Orkney Shetland, you know, involving Norway as well. Um, and uh, yeah, and Dublin was the centre of the slave trade. Um, it was it was clearly a really really important important centre. Um, like the Vikings in Ireland, um, it was a bit different to the way they operated, I suppose, or, or, or the history that developed in in, in England. Um, they never conquered Ireland. You know, the, right. they they had land around Dublin that they controlled. You know, they founded uh, trading posts. Cork, where, I, where I'm yeah. sitting right now, was a, was a Viking uh, Viking fort. Waterford, you know, Wexford, um, Limerick, but um, but they didn't kind of control the interior. You know, they they, um, they were more interested in setting up these these kind of outward facing trading areas I suppose that had a had a symbiotic relationship with with um with the Irish um and with oh. with the kind of agricultural society around them um but they were facing out into the Irish Sea and they were you know they were centers of trade and of, of places where raids were organized against England you know and um, mm-hmm. so quite a quite a different history developed but uh but yeah I haven't got that far in Vikings to the to the Irish um aspect of it yet but I really need to because um do they go into Ireland in Vikings? I can't remember. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, last Kingdom. That's, oh, that's Last Kingdom. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, so the Last King, the, there's a character that appears in uh, Season 2. Um, they don't go to Ireland or anything, but um, we kind of just hear about Ireland. They mm-hmm. make reference to it several times about how Ivar died there. That's why Ubba had to leave at one point. Yeah. And um, Sigtrygir is from there. Sigtrygir um, mm-hmm. is a new character in Last Kingdom in the show that just appeared from Dublin as well, so um, but we just had one of those uh, the actors on, and he told us about, you know, Dublin having the rich Viking history. It's not something that we yeah. think about with Dublin. Um, no, no. It's, I mean, if you if you go there, they, they have these kind of um, Viking tours, you know, where everyone is wearing a horned helmet and 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 shouting as they're driven around the driven around the city and things. So it's hard to miss its Viking heritage. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's it's. Um, I mean, it was perfectly located, I suppose, because it's, okay. it's slap bang in the middle of the, the Irish Sea. You know, it's um, it's facing Scotland, Wales, England, like uh, easy passage to the to the north and to the south to, um, you know, wherever wherever the Vikings wanted to go. Really, yeah. So. yeah, it's something we're we're learning more. It's just it's not all clear cut. This, these are the the Vikings, the Scandinavians. Here's the Saxons. It's you know there was British people there. Saxons came in. Vikings came in. Everyone's been, you know, murdering and marrying each other for hundreds of years and just yeah. blending it up. Yeah, yeah, and and but that's another thing that they they do really well. I think in those series is they don't they don't draw too rigid a line, you know, between these different different cultures and different peoples. You know, there's a lot of the Danes quickly assimilated in England, you know, and and, yeah. uh, and became Christian, and then you know would have fought against other Vikings, and then you know th- there was all this kind of interplay, and and the Irish were raiding monasteries before the Vikings even got there, you know, and um, and I think I think that image of Alfred kind of 
drawing on all the learned people he could get from from around Europe, you know, it kind of speaks to to the ties that there were, particularly amongst, you know, medieval Christianity, early medieval Christianity, you know, and and, and the the church of of being able to draw from across Europe, you know, um, to 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 reform the to reform the literature and the language in the way that he did. Um, that's amazing. And then, yeah, Flood too, is something that's covered in Last Kingdom that is, like, she should be talked about way more, I feel like, in history. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a good documentary, actually, that was on um, on the BBC not too long ago um, about Flood and, and her importance, yeah, as a, as a figure in, in, in Mercia, but in, in England as well, you know, in, in kind of um, that crucial period after, after Alfred yeah. passed, you know, and... Um, mm-hmm. And it could have passed on to her daughter as well, you know, if, uh, uh, yeah, if, if history had been a little different. Um, but no, I think, I think that's, uh, she's been overlooked quite a lot um, in the past. So it's, pre- it's great to see. I know, well, I haven't, haven't watched it this far, but I know that she, she comes in, in, in The Last Kingdom as well, doesn't she? She plays, plays Yeah, this last role. season they did the Battle yeah. of Teton Hall um, and, and covered that and had her and Edward kind of teaming up, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. cool to learn about these stories. They're just amazing stories and the Norse myths, really fascinating tales. One thing we always like to talk about on here is our shows, our favorite mm-hmm. books and movies and things like that. Uh, what, are, what are some of your favorite things to watch or uh, to even read or anything like that? Oh, gosh. Um, that's, uh, that's a difficult one. What have I been watching recently? Um, I've been I've been watching quite a lot of trash actually with, with the lockdown being on. Yeah, yeah. No, I've I've enjoyed uh, I have enjoyed watching Vikings. Like uh, that that's something I've I've been meaning to watch for a long time, and I kind of settled down to it during the lockdown. Like I know a lot of people have got these back backlogs of things that they wanted to watch. Yeah, um, you probably have a unique uh, take when watching it, knowing a lot of these stories by heart already, and then kind of seeing them after the fact where we were yeah. <laughs> knowing nothing about it and learning about them. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's been nice for, nice for that. Um, and, uh, but what other shows have I been, have been watching? Um, you've caught me with that question. Actually, I can't, oh, I can't I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> are you, are you a fan of the, the, like the Marvel movies in that though, too? Do you, do you stay? Yeah. I, I particularly like the, the, um, Phil Ragnarok, you know, I thought yeah. that was really, that was really funny actually. And, and it was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a whole other discussion, right, about Marvel and what, what they've done with the myths and things. But, uh, but yeah, for the British, time. they're all British now. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. Scandinavians. Yeah, yeah, Loki. He's um, yeah, he's become a kind of uh, a bit of a cultural icon, hasn't he? The, yeah, the he figure in Marvel. But, um, he yeah. seems kind of true though to the myth, though to me, though at least I'm just like he seems pretty consistent with what I read and hear to what's up on there. Yeah, he's yeah, he's sly and he's he's handsome and he's yeah, um, he's devious. Like yeah, I think they've got a lot of things right. Um, yeah. And uh, and Thor as well. You know, he he has his moments when he's you know, his strength is <laughs> is better than his brains. It's yeah, it's yeah, true. Especially in Ragnarok, they, they, yeah, he tosses <laughs> brains out the window. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so we, we really enjoyed this book, uh, reading from you, The Norse Gods and Myths Retold. So uh, do you have any other books coming up, anything else lined up that you plan on writing? Um, well, I'm, I'm working on a, on a children's uh, version of the myths at the moment. Um, very cool. So it's very, very cool. Very early stages, but a, an illustrated version 
Um, so yeah, that that was the kind of lockdown project. That's interesting. So, yeah, something I need to settle down to is to reading Bernard Cornwall as well. Um, yeah, a bit I, of a travesty that I haven't haven't read those books. Yeah, they're fascinating. He stays, you know, more so than the show too to the history as yeah, well. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I like at, at the end of all his books, he kind of tells what he had to change from the history to make it fit the story of the book, which is which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've heard I've heard very good things, and he he's clearly done his research, you know. And I don't know what you think of Neil Gaiman's uh, Noel Smiths, but... Um, yeah, I took a look at it. Um, they're good. It, it seems like he does kind of take liberty to tell his own story sometimes. Yeah, which is, which is good, it's I think. Cool. It's, you, can, you can really hear his voice in it, you know. And I like the fact that he, he treats them very much as kind of these everyday figures. You know, he uses very kind of informal language and, you know, he, he doesn't put them on a pedestal. Um, Mm-hmm. I think he lost some of the seriousness of some of the myths, you know, the, the kind of um, the big dramatic cosmic yeah. things. He kind of, he kind of downplays them a little bit. Um, but I think it's, I think it's a really good retelling as well. You know, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's well, it'll be interesting. Popular. Yeah. Well, I feel like one of the challenges might be how to make a children's book out of some of these stories too, with just some of how graphic they are. <laughs> I know, I know. That's something I'll have to be negotiating with the with the publisher. I think. Or just so, knocked them out, yeah. made them go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, some of them they'd love. You know, there's a lot of toilet toilet humor and yeah, you yeah. Know, um, crazy things happening. But uh, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. For yeah. Well, you'll have to let us know too if if that comes out, and uh, we'd love to check that out. Even though it, it would be geared toward children, it'd probably be super mm-hmm. cool for adults to read as well. But yeah. Yeah, um, when I'm reading it, sometimes I'm just like, how how would I retell these now that I know them to, to like a child or something like that? Yeah. I've, I've been thinking about that. So I think that'll be really cool to check out. Yeah. Well, you should. You should. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> take them all in. Give them a different take. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, so, Thanks so much for inviting me. It was, yeah. it was good to chat. Yeah, we'll have we all of his, uh, his books linked down to below in the description. Yeah, if you want to learn about the myths, you want to learn about the history intertwined with the myths, uh, this is a great book to check out, uh, The Norse Myths. And, by the way, we didn't really talk about it much, but I really love how you bring in the art that was created from it, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did want to mention real quick one of the... I, I love the... Um, I don't remember what page it's on, but the painting of King Ayla being told that the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok are coming. Yeah, uh, it's one of my favorites just because he just looks so sad yeah. <laughs> sitting on his yeah. throne thinking of what might happen. <laughs> oh, damn moment. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, no, some, some great artwork in that book. Um, there's the paperback version as well. I haven't got the, the hardback. Um, I never got, oh. I got I all my copies of that, but I've got the little, the little paperback here. So, oh, okay. um, yeah. Thank you again me. for coming on and thanks everyone for, for listening in. Uh, make sure to check out the links we have down below. Make sure to follow us on podcasts or subscribe on YouTube and follow us all on social media and everything too. And uh, we'll have all of uh, Dr. Tom Burkett's stuff linked down below. So check that out. But uh, thanks again. 